everyone welcome to talking research i am asmita and this is a podcast that features in-depth interviews with prominent academics and researchers who study sexual violence across its different manifestations This conversation features an in-depth discussion of sexual violence, both in specific cases and more generally. If this is something that you find disturbing, please feel free to stop listening at any point. The guest today is Dr. Jane Merrick, who is a senior lecturer in health psychology at the University of West England. Jane co-leads the research around sexual violence and abuse at the University of West England at Bristol, and she is also a chartered psychology health psychologist and a public health specialist in this conversation we spoke about jane's upcoming research focusing on campus sexual violence and how universities can improve disclosures from survivors of sexual violence on campuses if you like this episode or if you have any other feedback at all please leave a review and also get in touch through our social media all the social media handles are in the podcast description along with links to organizations that support survivors of sexual violence and if you're liking the podcast please also consider rating us on apple podcasts if you can but that's everything from me i wish everyone a very happy diwali if you're celebrating this saturday and let's dive in Hi Jane, welcome to Talking Research. How are you doing today? I'm very well and it's really interesting to talk to you. I'd love to hear some about your perspective on this topic, but I know we're supposed to be talking about what I think, so I'll try not to do too much asking questions myself. <laughs> no, I'd love that. I mean, uh it, it's actually an honor for me that you that you think that my perspective would be interesting, but um yeah, just to, you know, start tell us about yourself. How would you introduce yourself in a way that you like to be introduced? Uh, I kind of always do it in two ways. So, officially, I'm a senior lecturer in health psychology at the University of West of England in Britain, but I'm also an accredited public health specialist, so I kind of dual qualified in two fields, but um uh where i've applied that knowledge is really across sexual health sexual health services and much more lately around um sexual violence but i kind of started out working in uh child and adolescent mental health and uh interventions and training and support around teenage pregnancy and with that i went on to do regional and then national level policy making about sexual health sex education then did stuff around hiv and hiv testing and kind of since then have moved between public health academia and health psychology and um so my labels are say two disciplinary fields but I kind of follow the work that's perfect so how did you get into researching sexual violence uh well I've been working in sexual health for about 25 mm. years so it's always kind of been an element of what I do specifically more around probably teenage pregnancy and sex education because it's an element of what goes on there in in negotiating sexual relationships but kind of more recently I work with the sexual health services in and around Bristol and that covers the right. um SARC which is uh, in the UK that's the sexual assault referral center so just mm-hmm. in conversations with uh, some of the consultants that were leading that work we talked about some elements of what health psychology could contribute to that in terms of an evidence base and um research but at the same time i had a masters student um who was interested in doing a piece on uh pornography on the impact of young men and so these kind of two pieces of work came at the same time and they for me illustrated the breadth of the topic that it wasn't just about um uh experiences of victims but it was also how do we tackle it in a way that covers some of the contributing factors as well so the piece of work on pornography was submitted to something uh, called the women and inequality select committee in parliament they did a really amazing piece of inquiry and work on street based sexual harassment in public places had a range of academics and individuals giving their evidence and we submitted that and it was used in evidence in a uh, women And at the same time I began collaborating at the University of West of England with um an expert Professor Kieran McCartan and he's an expert on offender programs. 
and um, sexual violence and sexual offenders and how you address that side of the work. So it was a kind of a coming together of um, pieces of work that illustrated the breadth of understanding I felt you needed to do any of the prevention work that kind of led to a more focused mm. program of work that I was doing. And it's and it's very much done in a, coll- a collaborative way. So it's not me as an academic sitting there in university thinking I'm interested in this. It's I work very closely with the local services, uh, a bit about police, but also victims groups. And so for me, a lot of it is very slowly driven by conversations, um, uh, services saying we have a need here. We're not sure what to do about it. So that's kind of where it came from. Right. That's that's fascinating. And, you know, just to say what you're talking about, all of these grassroots organizations that work with survivors and, you know, that provide ground level support to survivors that they might need on a daily basis. So, so what, what does that look like? Just, you know, just to sort of walk us through that. So, you know, what, what does a SARC do? So um, a SARC is a, a service that's allied to the sexual health services. And it's basically four elements of support for victims reporting in kind of the last day or two. So that's kind of um, counselling, crisis service or a crisis worker, a forensic examination and a support person to help you uh, report to the police. So it's a kind of a bundle of very targeted work. It tends to be around... um, a focus on a criminal justice outcome. So it's a partly partly it's about reporting to the police, providing evidence for a case, but it's also the important counselling and support that a, a survivor victim might need. Um, and then there are the wider mm. uh, uh, range of counselling and support work. So I work with something called SARSAS, that's say Avon, let me get this right, Somerset and Avon, Sexual Abuse and Rape Support Services, which is an umbrella organization for all the individual non-government organizations and charities that support usually particular populations. Um, and they will tend to provide the, the longer term counseling support services groups and things like that for, for survivors. But um, yeah, so in conversations with them, partly in conversations with the police, partly in conversations with the university and what needs to happen there. It's the complexity that I like to embrace by, you know, trying to string together the needs of a different range of groups and seeing, okay, maybe we could do a piece on this. It's a, it's a very non-academic mm. way of doing it, but I think that speaks to my background in public health. So public health is very much about organizing yeah. the, res- the response and the prevention side. So um, yeah. um, I, I, it's not never enough for me to just do the data i need to change the world <laughs> yeah absolutely and i think especially in this line of work even in you know sexual violence academia as little as i know it really appears that this is the kind of work that really stems from what's happening on the ground you know this is why we're looking at all of these different uh things because of because we want to have an impact on um supporting survivors on the ground and you know preventing sexual violence as it happens so so that's really valuable and thank you for explaining all of these different services i just wanted to say on actually on that i listened to your interview with 1752 and i think that illustrates really well there's a kind of a movement around research activism that there's mm. there is a you know activism that's informed by the data and informed by the evidence and and i think we're seeing a lot more of that in this field mm, research activism i really like that uh, that phrase it's really powerful. Um, yeah, absolutely. Real world applications of research. That's what we're here for. Today, we're going to talk about your study investigating sexual violence on university campuses. And this is something that you're working on. It's an ongoing project. And so, so correct me at any point if I get something wrong. But um, you've kind of looked at the gaps between experiences of sexual violence survivors and their experience of reporting sexual violence on campus. So before I ask you that, I want you to tell me what we know about sexual violence on university campuses. So I think it's interesting that uh, whether we position the university campuses as either 
somewhere it's worse, somewhere that illustrates a lot of the problem or somewhere that's just a reflection of the rest of society, that these things happen everywhere and it's just somewhere you can capture it easily. But um, I think what we do know, so what we know from the research, from the WHO, is that one in three women experience sexual violence in their lifetimes. And that, that, but there is a patterning underneath that. So ethnicity, age, gender and sexual identity all change uh, the pattern of that experience and it tends to mirror lines of inequality. So um, that's what we know at the top level. Right. Now, in university campuses, potentially what a lot of researchers have said that it kind of presents a perfect storm of age, situation and factors. So if you think about it, it's um, it tends to be young women are the most likely to be victims, young men are the most likely to be perpetrators the opportunistic uh, circumstantial factors around nighttime economy, the role of alcohol. Um, and then if you think about why young people at university might be particularly vulnerable is that it's the first time they potentially could be living on their own. They've come away from their supportive networks and friends they know and trust. Mm. They're making new friendships, often in nighttime economy uh, setting with a lot of alcohol. So you can begin to see how that comes together in a kind of, as, as I think uh, Graham Tao described it, a perfect storm of factors around sexual violence, which might make universities mm. a particular hotspot. But also for me, I think uh, working in a university, I think it should be a particular location for doing something about it. We're best, we're really well placed to do prevention work. We can do more. And I think that that prevention should start much earlier. It should start in schools. This is about the breadth and depth of sex education, which, is, which has been well recognised as not doing the job. Therefore, by the time they come to university, mm. the sex education hasn't covered a lot of stuff around consent or what pornography means or the negotiation of healthy sexual relationships. So there's more to be done before they arrive at university. But I think university as a place where you decide who you're going to be when you grow up, what you want society to look like. All of those kind of wider questions is something that we're well placed to address. So um, I think potentially a hotspot, but also a really good yeah. place to intervene. Yes. And I think it's interesting that you use the word hotspot for sexual violence on university campuses because it's so accurate. But also because uh, I've recently been hearing this word hotspot on, you know, coronavirus universities as coronavirus hotspots. I think especially in the UK and the US where uh, some universities have gone back to normal teaching, you know, face-to-face -face teaching and how that's panning out. But I think it's also really important to think about universities, as you said, as hotspots for increased sexual violence and, you know, focusing on prevention work around that. Well, I think it's big. My background is... is Public health. So I'm, I'm just going to say a little bit about hotspots because it's really interesting because what you've picked up on there is that my research mm. approach is very much informed by public health. So what in public health, any kind of threat or harm, you do things like map the prevalence. Okay, how much of it is there? And okay, well, what's the evidence mm. base? What, what do we know works? How can we? How good is the evidence to prove that that intervention works? So those two tools are essentially kind of how I've approached the field of sexual violence, you know, positioning it as something that we need to understand the prevalence for. So that's led to the whole um, mm. sense of, well, what, what are the levels in university and the campus climate work? And then that obviously leads on to, well, we don't know what the prevalence is because so many people don't report it. So it's kind of easy to see where I got to where I got to from a public health approach. What's yeah. the prevalence? What's the evidence base? Yeah, that, that's fascinating and also really important. I think this pandemic has really brought to light how maybe, you know, we should be uh, bringing that perspective into, you know, disciplines that sort of measure. Because sexual violence also is a public health concern, isn't it? I mean, it, it, it has various impacts on the health of survivors. And, you know, do, do, you, do you hear what I'm trying to get at here? Does yeah, that yeah, make sense? I think. It's understanding what I think a public health approach gives me is the freedom to look at it in a much wider way. So public health will recognise societal inequalities as a key determinant of health and a key determinant of the inequalities in health. So um, how society is organised, right. gender inequality, racial inequality, is all, all speaks to why 
certain burdens of ill health or lifestyle choices are there. So if you bring that to sexual violence, Mm. it's understanding sexual violence in terms of inequalities in society, but also understanding it on a a much smaller level Mm. to um, why these people might be more victimized, why we have to then get good data on it before we can truly say we're doing something, but also why we have to prove that something works properly before you roll it out. So I think I understand that the criminal justice perspective tends to be is really important and has done a lot of work, but it's tended to dominate the sexual violence field. So a lot of the work I see is about um, uh, reporting to the police, uh, getting a good case together Mm. or for victim survivors to get justice. And it's really interesting, just this term justice. I don't I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just it, it makes me question, is that what we should be aiming for? Why are we looking for justice? Is that what victims, survivors say they want? So if I take put my health psychology hat on, I might use a term like recovery and um, uh, mm. understanding trauma and the effect that that will have on somebody's life. So just, for example, one of the participants in our study who was still studying at university. So she was managing to stay on the course, but she was suffering probably two, three years down the line hallucinations, flashbacks, unable to sleep, um, constant anxiety, not feeling safe in public spaces. And this was after quite a violent rape. So understanding that person's experience in terms of psychological processes of trauma and recovery, also health impacts. So poor sleep leads to all kinds of ongoing health impacts post-traumatic stress disorder might be seen through anxiety, um, greater mm. reliance on alcohol or drugs to, you know, to kind of feel better about yourself, to calm yourself down. So that whole um, picture of harm that comes from the sexual violence can be framed in a public health prevention way. And I think that opens up a lot more fields about the data we mm. can draw on the prevention we can do and the levels from societal down to individual that we can understand the problem at. Mm, Yeah. And I think that's a very survivor centric approach as well, you know, really asking the survivor what it is that they want to be focused on. Is it recovery? Is it justice? You know, really just centering the survivor. So yeah, that's really valuable. That understanding for me is having having their voice and the story and the experience at the front of everything, at the heart of the research, but being mm. able to place that individual yeah. experience within the wider community, country, as societal, if you think of the layers of determinants of behaviour and health, being able to understand both. That's why I'm both a public health specialist and a health psychologist. I need to understand what's going on inside for them. Mm. But I also need to understand the determinants mm. around them that means that they're in that position and they have that experience and what we can do about it. Mm, that's an amazing perspective. So moving on, you know, this study that we're talking about today. So tell us about it. You're investigating the gaps between, you know, the experience of sexual violence on campus and how survivors experience reporting those in- incidents through the reporting procedures available to them on campuses and just generally, you know, this problem on university campuses. So, you know, tell us more about the study. So we at UE have have kind of done a lot of uh, early work on this sector. So before me, Rachel Fenton did some early, and Kieran McCartan did some uh, work around bystander Um, interventions and that's happened at UWE. So I uh, worked with Kieran on a very early campus climate study that we did in 2019. So these are common in the US because of Title IX provisions. So they interestingly set their campus-based prevention work in the framework of ensuring equal access to education. Whereas it's interesting in this country, we position Mm. um, universities as kind of businesses and the students as consumers. So a lot of the uh, policy stuff is framed around consumer policy and how uh, you know you might complain about getting a bad pair of shoes from a shop is used as the framework to understand not getting a good, good education or experiencing sexual violence at university. I find that contrast really interesting. Mm. So we've, we've done an early campus climate survey, and that was a, a large um, 
anonymous online survey and then a smaller group into um, individual interviews with uh, sexual violence survivors and what we kind of found just to contextualize the gap stuff is we found that most of the sexual abuse and harassment was by men on women it was mainly touching and verbal harassment Mm. but there was still a high level of sexual assault and penetrative rape most of it happens in semester one at university it tended to be perpetrated by young white men known to the victim and a lot of it occurred within nighttime economy or student accommodation so it tended to be that kind of opportunistic so we did that big picture stuff but for me I was Mm. bringing my kind of public health hat on again and I wanted to know okay what's the prevalence what's the prevalence and all of the research is showing us that we we know what we don't know we don't know the prevalence because so many people are under report so I wanted to get um a marker on a gap between that reported to the university as opposed to an anonymous prevalence rate at the university via the survey to kind of document that gap and then also to use that Mm. gap as an indicator an evidence-based indicator that any of the work that we were doing could narrow that gap so my focus has kind of been what is the gap Mm. how can we narrow that gap and so um, right. amongst that wider stuff around, let's do, we do lots of much wider work at the university. So that kind of piece of work of documenting the levels has allowed us to um, do the survey, do the interviews, work with a lot of the key agencies such as SARSAS and uh, the SARCs. But we've also done work, not me, but other groups within the university have then done stuff around addressing social norms, bystander intervention. We've used the work to kind of drive policy and discipline reviews about how uh, we talk about our behavioural expectations of students, how we uh, manage uh, accusations of sexual violence. So we've ensured that things like getting a a sexual violence expert on all of the disability panels that are treating or looking at a sexual violence incident is really important. We're encouraging and getting some, some movement on getting HR to review uh, a lot of their procedures. Because what we also did uniquely was we asked staff as well. So a lot of this research tends to focus on the students, but we're talking about universities Mm. as a context as a workplace as well as a place to study. And I think the universities represent something slightly different in that there's also high incidence amongst staff and postgraduate students. And if you think about the hierarchical structure of universities, that Mm. there's a lot of... um, single professor patriarchal gatekeeper to jobs research jobs resources supervision that you can see how as an institution Mm. especially in the way it divides up into quite male dominated Mm. disciplines that there is a kind of a institutional um atmosphere or culture that enables um uh, sexual violence abuse and harassment so it's understanding it both staff and students and putting those two together as two sides of the coin. So I've kind of gone off into a great long list of everything that Yui's doing there. But um, that is because we wanted to do work that led to change. And we've done the big survey and we've done the smaller studies, but we've got, so we worked with Bristol City Council and we've got uh, a needs, they did a needs assessment of sexual violence in the region. And we made sure there was a section in there on students. We've talked to the um, EHRC, so the Equalities and Human Rights Commission, around Mm -hmm. their guidance on workplace harassment policies. And we've said, God, you know, you've really got to put this stuff in about an anonymous prevalence rate. So it's the way that we've worked is to try and get everything into, you know, finding the points of pressure that might make a change and using the evidence we've collected to, to kind of feed into that. So I think we've done that. Quite well. We've also just, oh, good news this week, been nominated for a Times Higher Education mm. Award um, for outstanding student support around this body of work, which the study sits in. It's part of a wider body of work on oh. um, tackling and preventing sexual violence on campuses. So, whew, been a lot of hard work. And it's what's also interesting is many, many of the people working on this are doing it outside their day jobs. So it's also putting pressure on universities to get more resources Mm. and I think this is interesting because universities if you think about it in the way I was talking that universities see themselves maybe as having um, a customer base and therefore uh, they're working on a commercial base they need more students who pay fees 
it's a bit like a business model. Um, many, right. I think, across the country are, are, are wary of reputation and therefore they don't want to scare students. So I've heard this on a number of levels, you know, trying to get ethics for studies that you don't want to keep going on about sexual violence at universities because you will scare the students. And I've always found that very counterintuitive. And mm. um, I think Graham Towell and his work will say, at Durham has talked about this, is that actually parents and students want to know that they will be looked after at university, that the university is addressing it. So he always says, get, the, get parents to ask students how much resource is being spent on prevention of sexual violence at your university. So rather than not mm. talking about it, be a kind of a leader in it. Say, this is what we're doing. This is what we're doing to prevent it. Because not talking about it doesn't mean it goes away. If you're a young person going out to nightclub, as many mm. of the young people we spoke to, especially women, said it's absolutely normal to be groped, to have somebody stick a hand up their yeah. skirt, to have to go and hide in the toilets or to try and get a bouncer to do something about it. So there's no way that they don't know yeah. about this or are scared of it because the university brings it up. So. Um, yeah, I think it's just really interesting mm. that it's some in some places it's really motivated academics as well as the kind of admin and um, systems based people at universities. But we need to be more focused on how much mm. resource universities are putting behind this. There we go. I had a bit of a rant there. <laughs> no, that was that was amazing. I'm going to try to uh, try to pick your brain about. The things you said, some of them uh, that came up. So, what I what I gather from what you said is that you essentially did this massive survey, uh, which was you know available to students and staff on the campus, just to get an idea of how common sexual violence is. And this was anonymous, and if they've experienced, if they have any particular experiences of it. And the second thing was you conducted in depth interviews with. Um, people who are on, on the campus, so students and staff as well, who had experienced reporting it. Am I right in that? So what we did was the large survey, which was staff and students. And then we, um, one of my master's students, mm -hmm. a very talented Nina Higson-Sweeney, did her master's dissertation on interviewing mm -hmm. a smaller group of students who'd experienced sexual violence at university. And what we found was... Um, it was a range of experiences, not just at UWE, it was at previous universities or while they're at university. But what I really, I haven't talked about the gap enough, so let me have a little chat about that <laughs> and then I'll go on to talk about the interview stuff. So what I didn't say was the mm. from the wider survey, we found a lot about uh, levels, of, levels of reporting. So if you look at wider research, Revolt Sexual Assault or the Student Room study in 2018 found about 94% of students were not reporting their experiences. So that's incredible and you know shocking but um what we found in our survey was about 60 percent don't report mm. but then if you go down into the types of sexual abuse or harassment you know predictably mm. the more serious sexual assault or rape that number goes up a bit but the numbers start to get a bit small so I'm, I'm not happy to talk about percentages in that group but what was also I found really important important and shocking was when they went to mm. sexual health services where I do a lot of other work most of them weren't reporting when they were going to the sexual health service to tackle the um the sexual health or physical results of the assault so they were going to where they could get they were going to the front door where they could get help help is in the building the SARC is on the top floor the, the clinic is on the bottom floor they're designed to kind of go you need to go here but they weren't telling at that point so mm. um that for me really flagged up the need to work on how do we improve reporting. And we did some basic surveying about, so what mm -hmm. was it that stopped? And it was very hard to ask that question methodologically because you can't, we've struggled with the wording because you don't want to go, well, why didn't you tell anybody in a kind of a victim blaming way? Because a lot of them were mm -hmm. talking about feeling self-blame and blaming themselves or worrying about victim blaming. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was really clear that there yeah. was a kind of a paralyzing, silencing effect of shame and victim blaming, a worry that they had yeah. somehow brought it on themselves. So that was part of it. But then the other part of it was probably stems from that. And this is where my health psychology brain kicks in. So if you're feeling ashamed, if you're worried people will blame you, you will probably use coping mechanisms that are about distancing yourself or pushing away the initial trauma. 
So a lot of the coping mechanisms mm. was just, I want to move on. I didn't want to think about it anymore. Um, so that was another reason that people weren't support, weren't reporting. So it was kind of self-blame, fear of other people's reactions, dealing with it in mm. a, um, a kind of a damaging, pushing it away coping mechanism. And then if you look at the pathway of what happens to them, you can then see why post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms might re-emerge. Because as a psychologist, if you push something down, it tends to messily appear somewhere else, you know, through addictions mm. or chaotic behavior, you know, all of those things, you can begin to see the pathway. And so again, I just felt compelled that we need to find a way that that the victims and survivors can get the help they need as early as possible. Now, part mm. of that, part of the, the reporting within the wider survey about why they didn't um, talk to anyone was very much about rape myths, about pervasive societal rape myths that to be raped, it needs to be a stranger in a dark alley, they need to use violence, you need to be somehow sexually pure. And it was these these stereotypes of who it happens to that had mm. somehow kind of been internalized within the especially young women who felt, oh, well, I had a mm. drink. I'd got myself into that situation. There was this narrative of how it was partly their fault and therefore, you know, you should just move on and forget about it. And yet all the harm and mm. trauma is still there, is undealt with mm. and kind of is exacerbated by that approach. So, um, mm. so then we went to look at kind of individual eleven um, students, current students, and and um, postgraduate students. So you could say it was slightly a staff perspective. And we did uh, well. Nina, the master's student, did some really interesting work. So I'll talk about some of the stuff that came from that because I think this is fascinating. And she kind of found that there was mm. almost a three-stage process. So she did long in-depth interviews, um, a range of experience from kind of sexual harassment in public that was quite serious to violent rape. So a spread across a range of victims, mm. slightly different ages, um, partly more uh, white women, but also there was a mixture of mixed heritage grouping. So we, we did the best we could, but it's a qualitative interview. So we're not trying to get representative numbers. We're just yes. trying to push out the range of experience. So what she found was there was this kind of important theme about how you make sense of sexual violence. So these victims were really struggling to make sense of what happened to them. And that was partly because it often occurred within a relationship. They knew the perpetrator. And it was it felt like such an act of betrayal by a friend or a partner or somebody within a friendship group that you thought you knew. So that making sense that shock or making sense of what just happened I thought they were my friend they're supposed to be my partner contradictory information and then there was a sense also that this was this making sense made them feel violated of their own safety either their personal physical safety or this at university the physical space yeah. the campus we had one person who was um, sexually harassed by a member of staff and this happened on campus so that person was saying how they don't feel safe in the office anymore, obviously. So there was this violation of safety, mm. but also that the labels that we often use to describe mm. experience. So we talk about sexual violence, particularly the word violence. That's not how they felt they experienced it. They didn't want to use mm. something about the word rape. They, the making sense didn't mean labeling it rape or sexual violence. And in fact, those words shut down a lot of explanations mm. for them. They didn't relate to it. Well, no, I don't think that's what happened to them. But what I see over a time potentially mm. in the research is that those labels come to be accepted, but it takes a process of change and kind of going over and understanding the trauma and talking about the trauma before you can really even see it in that light. And that takes time. So mm. this is what you'll obviously see mm. in, in criminal justice research where reporting doesn't happen is delayed and a lot of victims this is then taken um this is then used in court against them why didn't you tell somebody at the time why did you yes. look why did you look why did you react in this way so if you take a trauma-informed approach a complete suppression of what's happened to them trying not to think about it acting you know making jokes speaking to the person again pretending nothing has happened it's kind of a normal reaction that you would see so what we found in these interviews was that kind of first stage of making sense then moved on to something around what are the actual so if you've got it you've got it lined up in your own head what do you do about it so then there was these barriers to disclosure mm. and that was again blaming yourself 
and thinking that other mm. people would say, oh, well, shouldn't you have known better? And what the right. research also shows is most people will informally disclose to start with, and often the reaction will be, um, well, what were you doing there? Or didn't you know he was like this? Or, you know, kind of a, mm-hmm. it was your fault, rather than the, that's terrible, that's happened to you, it's not your fault, which should be the first response. And I think a lot of them felt mm-hmm. that they didn't want to be labelled a victim right. or a rape victim. And that was something around um, what they mm. might see happens to rape victims in our society. There's not very many examples of it going well. Reporting is yes. not something you're looking like, hey, that's that's really going to help me. You don't see that. You see a lot of uh, women in particular finding it really hard and being, you know, it's just it's there are no good stories about reporting. And this, I think, is a particular issue. I'm going to keep going about lots of complexities here. But, you know, for men, what we found is that within the smaller study, we had one male reporter who'd experienced um, childhood sexual abuse. And that for us is really important in understanding that we we know we don't know a lot about reporting. Right. We particularly don't know about male sexual victims because for them, the whole stereotypes of what it is to be a man mm. means reporting is probably incredibly hard. Again, I don't know, because we don't know. So that's why we've got to improve disclosure. Mm. So thinking about, so there was the making sense and there was the barriers mm. to what's going to, for you telling anyone, is it serious enough? If it was partly my my fault, am I going to get blamed? Mm. Um, is there anything that you can do? I think a lot of the victims mm. said, well, you know, what's the point of it? So I'm just going to read a little bit of a quote because I think you've got to hear victims' voices. You've got to hear survivors' voices to understand mm-hmm. this. So this is uh, one of our respondents. I suppose it's coming to realise that not all sexual violence is about bruises. The reason I'm wary of rape and talk more about consent is because I guess I feel like I have no recollection of what happened. Could I have consented? Could I have given the come on? Potentially. Is that rape? The lines are murky. It's a difficult term to relate to. And I think that really speaks to the to the difficulty of labeling it something and then once you know what it is you know what to do about it where do I go to get that sorted out and I remember one of them saying well they did point me towards sexual violence services but I didn't think what happened to me was sexual violence so I didn't go to those services and that was a really you know very logical insight into how the words we use will change um, people's response Finally, I think we talked in the, another study theme was about navigating the support when you did get it. So there was a, a lack of informal support or informal support was was very much informed by rape myths. So it was particularly blaming, which wasn't very helpful. Mm. So there wasn't enough informal support. And there was there just didn't seem to be any positive experiences of reporting. Even with the universities, if you go to the policy team, they'll give you in a in a kind of a effort to be to ensure that you're informed of what's going to happen, they'll be quite honest and say, "Well, this is going to happen. This one is coming," and it doesn't sound great. The process does not sound positive. And if you go to even more formal uh, reporting sources, such as the police, it's very heavily flagged as this is not going to be good. <laughs> this is not going mm. to be helpful. And you can see how somebody who's experienced a trauma might say, "Well, why would I do that?" Yeah, so the, those are kind of the key things that came out of the smaller study. We did do some very mm. specific questioning about what we can do at UWE. So we had some really clear information from our student body and from staff particularly about what we can do. And we've fed that into a lot of the policy, social norms, prevention work that we're doing. Mm. Right. Right. That was That was very well explained. You know, you sort of explained why survivors don't report or what are some of the barriers to reporting campus sexual instances of campus sexual violence and you know just how common it is and what that looks like but I wanted to go back to what you said about male victims and you know barriers to their reporting and there's this really amazing tv show that's just come out it's called I May Destroy You I don't know if you've seen that oh I loved it I loved it yeah, me too. I just, I think it was so wonderfully done. And in that, uh, there's that scene where, you know, the protagonist's friend, a man, he's raped and he goes to report his 
sexual assault and uh, you know what that experience is like and you know how that just just how you know off putting or even just how terrible that experience was for him um and you could tell that the police uh, person was really trying to you know do but i guess that come maybe in that instance it came down to a lack of not knowing how exactly to behave with a male victim i don't know what what the problem there is but i thought that was a really wonderfully done scene about how difficult it is for male victims to report definitely so there's yeah. a great organization in the uk called survivors that are particularly around um male sexual assault uh, survivors which is why it's called survivors but um, I think we just don't know enough. And I think mm. that the lack of reporting there is very much informed by gender stereotypes. You know, so uh, some people would say a man can't be raped, which is incredible. But, you know, the the sense that if you have been raped as a man, it says something about who you are as a man. In the same way that women might say that if you've been raped, it says something about who you are. So in our smaller study, you know, women not wanting to be labelled as a sexual um, violence victim or a rape victim and that you know changing the their identity for the rest of their lives and they rejecting that and going well I don't want that to happen so it's this idea that uh, an incident yeah. defines you rather than defines the perpetrator so I think that so that um, treatment of of sexual violence by that TV program was I thought it was incredibly subtle because it 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 examined not only the processes of a traumatic event and how people might react, but also it did it from so many perspectives. It did the kind of um, sex positive, I'm being sexually liberated, but then maybe I was slightly victimized by the friend. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the main character experiencing mm-hmm. it, trying to understand it, trying to report it, but also trying to process yeah. it. And do I want to take revenge? Do I want yeah. to empathize with my perpetrator? It was just this not going for black, and white and very clear definitions of everything but showing that this is a a messy you know it's like the quote I said it's a murky area and you can choose to go to label it this or you can choose to label that and how you frame it then dictates what roads or to recovery are there for you so I thought it was a really good treatment of it I think everyone should watch it yeah yeah and I feel like there's there's a there's a lot that needs to be done to change popular representations of rape survivors, you know, and because what we, and I'm talking here from the perspective of India, you know, the representations we've had for the longest time of rape victims and survivors is, you know, women who are destroyed, you know, who have nothing to look forward to, who are just completely traumatized, who need a man protecting them. And I feel like these representations have been so damaging and considering how common sexual violence is in this country you know as everywhere else but you know how common this problem is in india we we really need to work towards offering better representations of survivors you know yeah. just not not only to do do justice to survivors but also to as you said you know not dissuade survivors from reporting yeah yeah so I think that speaks to the to what I wanted to talk about a bit more about um, the concept of earned disclosure and the circumstances that we need to change yes. to enable people to be able to tell and to get the help they need early on so that the harm is reduced. So again, it's a kind of a public health yeah. um, perspective. So having done the wider campus climate survey and seen the massive gap in reporting, that's what I do I'm a public health specialist but um so what's the evidence so I looked at um there's a lot of uh, academic research from sexual violence services um from online safeguarding studies from systematic reviews of studies so systematic reviews where you collect all of the studies on a particular topic you weigh the quality of each one and then the ones that have good scientific evidence that something works you stick them all together and go okay what can we say overall? So what I did was go and reviewed all of those and tried to put them together into a model of the the things that would improve disclosure. And it's kind of come to a multiple level 
model where the first layer is something around the environment. What environment do you need to create? So I was thinking of the university while I was doing this, but I think this also applies to services where um, you might get uh, sexual violence victims pitching up in the crisis phase. So this is, I was thinking about sexual health services where Mm. maybe the questions they were asking weren't quite the right ones to find out why they were there if it was a result of sexual violence. So the environmental stuff was very much thinking about universities. It's information on healthy relationships. We focus all on, you know, these. this speaks to the idea that, that they might be arriving with very bad sex education and an over-reliance on sexual scripts coming from pornography. So, you know, it's not surprising that their ability to negotiate uh, healthy sexual relationships is, is we haven't given them enough information or ability to discuss or openness. So there's something around information on what healthy relationships are and what should be. But there's also the other side of it, which was busting the rape myths that Mm. we just talked about, the social norms, that this shouldn't be what rape Mm. means, this isn't what rape means. So there's rape myth busting. There's also training for all the staff and students. So this this is staff being able to understand sexual violence, knowing how to take a disclosure, um, a lot of universities talk about zero tolerance. I don't know. I'm, I find that slightly a problematic mm-hmm. idea that that's saying we have a zero, poli- zero tolerance policy to sexual violence. In my experience at other universities as well, that means it doesn't mean we don't stand it at all. Because it, it, to me, it means there's n- we won't tolerate it. Actually, in reality, it tends to mean we will deal with it if it's reported to us, which I think doesn't mm. mean the same thing at all. So. I, I don't know, the zero poly- tolerance thing, I don't know if I find it helpful. But um, it's also been comprehensive. This is particularly about online as well. So within recent experience of COVID and all of the teaching going online, it can't just be the physical space, it has to be the virtual spaces as well. Mm. And we know that there's tons of sexual harassment, um, um, image-based abuse online. So we have to be comprehensive in all of this messaging. Then if you take it down to what the staff can do, that there's uh, there's something around cultural competence in the way they speak. So being aware of triggers, but also being aware of you might exclude people's experience. So, so if you speak uh, about relationship, it's not being heteronormative. So you're not always talking about a man having sex with a woman, mm-hmm. that there are different ways of having relationships, that there are lots of groups that mm-hmm. can be targeted with. So that kind of cultural competence in the way you speak recognizing cues in others I teach a lot around sexual violence so I know I, I do a lot of trigger warning but I can see in a group of people that I'm teaching I can see somebody suddenly realizing I can see it happening in front of mm-hmm. my eyes and I know what to look for and universities cover a lot of these topics through lots of different disciplines so being able to know what that might look like knowing a, a student mm-hmm. knowing what student behavior is like seeing a change in behavior a change in and um, that's probably about wider alertness about mental health cues as well. But I think it's for me, mm. it's particularly about recognizing it, but also signaling an openness to being disclosed too. So that could be sim- something simple like mm. wearing an, um, a rainbow lanyard, which just kind of goes, you know, I'm open to discussing and being open minded about, this. you know, it's kind of cues like that, which is quite important. And I think also mm. evidencing positive outcomes or at least signaling this is the help you can get if you do report because I think that's a key motive what I think a lot of the students or in this research were saying well what's the point they didn't see the point and I can see that so what can they get what could what good could come of it why is it important to do it evidencing that by saying you know you can get specialist services so we're driving to get specialist sexual violence counseling services on site on campus rather than going well we'll refer you can you go and phone these people or go into town and find this out? You know, making sure that's there and go, we have, a, we have this on campus. You can get to this. We don't, you don't necessarily have to go through a disciplinary process. You can if you want to, but we can get you this, this and this. So showing some of the benefits. And then if you think about how an individual telling a, a member of staff or somebody how you might react to that, there's a whole level of, of, importance about being culturally sensitive, about being person-centered, about um, seeing diversity. If you think about the patterns of who is targeted for sexual violence, there's good evidence that if you are 
racially minoritized, if you're disabled, if you're LGBTQ+, there is a more targeting, there's a kind of a sexual bullying, um, policing of conformity through sexual violence. So if those groups are more likely to be targeted, then they need to see themselves in the the responders. So there needs to be diversity in the help that they can get. The language that they get talked to about this needs to be inclusive. Um, There needs to be a clear process for reporting, and that needs to be transparent and timely and centred around the reporting person. Um, And again, I think I've said it before, but they're describing the benefits of disclosure, making it clear. And then there's a kind of final bit, which is if somebody tells you how you behave, and I think this is well known, this is the individual response that you believe you do something I've called unblaming. You make sure it's you make it clear that it's not their fault. Um, you listen, you give them the options about and signpost, and you ensure that they feel in control of that disclosure mm. process. So I've kind of taken you through wider environmental mm. setting-based stuff, general yeah. response stuff, and then individual response stuff. So that wider picture is what I see as kind of the the whole picture of what you can do to improve disclosure with universities in mind. Mm. And having brought that from a review of the evidence base as it stands, which wasn't great, there wasn't tons on it, but there was enough from, you know, uh, work like the Veronica Ades, who's a very good um, medic in the US who specializes in working with the longer term health of uh, sexual violence victims. So people like that who've done reviews of service-related stuff as well as systematic reviews of study. So it's kind of bringing Mm -hmm. that evidence base together to come up with some recommendations that make sense. So on disclosure basically is how universities and, you know, really just any institution that's that's working towards preventing and reducing sexual violence on their premises or, you know, just within that institution can... Uh, work towards making broader changes that make it easier for survivors to report and make it less traumatizing for survivors to report yeah and yeah so so, so, so not just you know making not just tweeting the reporting process or not even just doing things like making the reporting process online but broader environmental changes that make that center survivors and make them feel welcome and really just make changes that lead their recovery, yeah, whatever think, that might look like for that person. I think it's a, it's a signaling of acceptance, which hmm. it doesn't, I don't think that isn't narrowed down just to sexual violence, but it's a kind of a, it's an important, it's the key role of, for me is diversity. So, this is about the intersectionality of race, gender, sexuality, and all of the reasons that certain mm-hmm. groups are targeted with sexual violence. And so this does relate to wider mm-hmm. social equalities debates. And therefore, for me, diversity is one of the most important things in tackling sexual violence and ensuring that we see the intersection with uh, racial harassment and other forms of harassment that if you have a range of people at all levels, that they are able to, that a victim will be able to see that, know they'll be listened to, but also that there will be people at all of those levels of decision-making saying, no, 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 we're not going to do it that way. The people that are objecting mm. to stuff that that uh, uh, perpetuates um, rape myths, for example, or that perpetuates ideas about how we should deal with the disciplinary processes within university. And I think that's incredibly important. Mm-hmm. I think that's been much more widely recognized. And also, I think tackling this institutional entitlement that, oh, we've, you know, made this guideline so survivors should report. It's 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 about tackling that entitlement that they should report to you because, you know, you have that reporting process. It's really about recognizing that maybe you're not doing enough and you need to change that and you need to invest in different ways of changing that so that that's really interesting and I also want to go back and say congratulations on you know the award that you mentioned for we're only nominated we haven't won yet but the nomination does mean that we brought brought a focus to the work for me that's fine getting nominated means it's brought a focus to the work so that's fine I don't need to win that's massive yeah I just wanted to say on your 
your point there about um, policy, the focus on policy, making it feel, I think a lot of people, manager managers feel as though they're being really busy if they write policy. And I've always, I love the quote that culture eats policy for breakfast. <laughs> you know, if you have to create a culture that invites and deals with reporting well, mm. writing a load of policies makes you feel busy as if you're tackling it, but is not an effective way to change. Yeah. Mm, that was that was very well put so I think what I've understood is I've got a really clear idea of the work that you did in the study and what your recommendations are and I think that's all really really valuable but I think hearing you talk about your work not just in this space but you know broadly working with organizations on the ground and supporting survivors in various ways and also just researching all of these different things is this emotionally draining? Is is any of this, uh, is any of your work emotionally challenging? And how do you balance your mental health with your work and your research activism, as you said? I think I exist in a constant state of irritation, anger and frustration. <laughs> Which I think, <laughs> but that's... It's I think important. you should put that on a t-shirt. <laughs> I'm an angry woman. I would wear that. But that is useful for me because it gives me energy. <laughs> it drives my activism. It makes me want to do something about it. It makes me want to change it. But also, I kind of a reality check of, you know, I, I've worked in sexual health for a long time. I listen to the stories that, that most people will blanch at. So I'm slightly hardened, not completely. And I think the other thing that listening to survivors' mm. voice and making their story and their voice heard helps me deal with what they've told me. So I started out in child psychology and and I kind of moved away from that field because I found it really difficult to balance hearing such dreadful, as a psychologist, hearing such dreadful stuff firsthand. I, I either became very cynical or cut off or I found it too upsetting. So I mm-hmm. I found that moving into research around it was just giving me that distance that I could handle it a bit better. So I am a bit of a, a coward. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I do research on it and I'm not in frontline services and the ability of those frontline services to hear these stories day in and day out, I think is immense and so unrecognized and so unrewarded and so underfunded. So I, you know, although some of it is really hard to listen to, I think I convert it into anger and I recognize that my suffering is really nothing compared to the stoicism of frontline support workers and to Mm. the survivors themselves and their bravery I mean if I think of some you know that student I've referred to who's still managing to study or a range of them who were saying you know I'm scared to go into campus I don't sleep well Um, you know the the educational impact on them simply in terms of not being able to go to lectures or feeling nervous Mm. about going to lectures but you're still managing to study I mean that bravery um, it's huge. So um, I think also for other people doing it, I think breaks and boundaries, you know, good breaks where you don't answer emails, you don't do anything about it, you don't think about it and clear boundaries around your work, which I think is hugely challenging for anybody in this home. You know, all of our work now is in in your bedroom or your office at the back of your house. And if you're, mm. I think I was talking, Kieran McCarthy and I were talking about this at a meeting the other day that you know, if you think of people doing this type of work, that used to be at work. It was in the office and you had a physical ritual boundary around where that stuff was dealt with. And then you came home and it was separate. But now everybody's listening mm-hmm. or reading this stuff in their own bedrooms, maybe with their kids next door. And so that need to reestablish clear boundaries around your work in order to preserve your mental health. So secondary traumatization of, of researchers is huge. And I think that there's big projects going on contemporaneously and I think that there's a big recognition that reading through tons of these accounts can be really damaging so mm-hmm. acknowledging that we have you know I'm a psychologist we work in a psychology department so for our researchers and for us we set up uh, not just academic supervision but psychological supervision and debriefing and access to an expert on um, sexual violence counselling who so we had a kind of a hierarchical approach to our researchers who were collecting frontline stories to speak to their supervisor who is an expert and then to speak to a a counsellor if they needed it but 
simply discussing that and acknowledging that and recognizing the impact on the researcher how did it make mm. you feel what did it make you think about those kind of things it is I think we're lucky because we're a psychology department we kind of knew but I see you know that might not happen in other for other researchers so I think there's a range of things stay angry <laughs> stay mm. angry and irritated but look after yourself know your yeah. boundaries that kind of thing yeah I think yeah. if I was okay with it I would get a lot done because I'm I'm angry I, I need to get stuff done that absolutely and this reminds me of uh, what Audrey Lord wrote really beautifully about anger and anger is a positive force and you know how women are often told to to, to stop being angry and you know anger is so negative and but we should be angry and because anger you know it shows that there's something that's wrong and that needs fixing and personally for me that was really empowering just you know i think that kind of gave me permission to be angry and you know just yeah. not not feel like there's something wrong with me because i'm angry um but i think yeah. you know uh, being okay with um being forceful in meetings so i'm the i'm usually the one that goes right i want to talk about this and this needs to happen and this needs to happen i have been told with feedback you know there are other ways of of getting stuff done maybe i shouldn't be so forceful in meetings and i kind of went no actually i am going to be cross about this this isn't good enough and i think it's a a very gendered way to to frame that as somehow emotional in females that that forcefulness is emotional no it's not it's anger because this needs to be better and uh, yes. I guess I'm quite comfortable with being framed as the hysterical one in the corner and I'll carry on doing it that's 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 so empowering to listen to you know that's 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 amazing that you're you know that you're sort of giving us an example of that it's okay to to do do to do that and you know how important even it is um if we have time for a last question, I want to ask you if you have one practical advice for everyone listening about what they can do on their own levels. You know, they don't have to be working to prevent sexual violence. They don't have to be, uh, you know, formally involved in the field. But, you know, really what what is something that all of us can do on a day-to-day basis to prevent sexual violence and support survivors better? It's really funny because I knew you were going to ask me this question, and the real struggle for me is to say one thing about anything. But it can be more than one thing, <laughs> you know. It's I think it the, the if you give us more than one thing, that's even more useful. So yeah, just as many as you want. I think the top thing is to name it, is to call it out, and I think this is an important message for men. Most men don't, and I think that's important to understand. But. Most men, neither do most men call it out when they see it. And they have, it's easy, you know, I am used to being the framed as hysterical woman who will start shouting about this stuff and say it's not good. And it's easy to, I I think it's easy to dismiss me if there's no men also saying that this is true. So their voice is is missing from the Mm. debate. I want to see um, men who don't standing up and challenging it but everyone can call it out and I think Mm. especially as women we're trained to um, be polite about it and to minimize it and go oh it was my mistake or I've slightly misunderstood this I think we've all experienced this you know whether it's harassment or public transport Mm. it's like well I'll leave it I'll do this I'll not embarrass anyone but something I've uh, I'm doing another piece where Mm. I'm talking about um creep creepiness we understand the word creep and the feeling of somebody who's creeping who's being creepy it's a kind of instinctive I experience it as an instinctive understanding that this is wrong and I think we've all been taught to kind of slightly minimize that try and you know possibly I've misunderstood the cues don't do that call it out name it and get out of there I think teaching people to understand that Mm. recognizing it calling it out and that speaks also to the evidence. So count it on a more structural level. Do you not have to be working in this field, particularly wherever you work? Do they count it? Do they ask? Are there surveys that say, okay, in this workplace, who's experienced this? Do they know how much it goes on? Shine a light on it. Call it out. Shine a light on it. I think that there is two more things I'd say, that there needs to be a prevention focus on perpetrators and enablers, not on the victim so much. So it's all about what you can do to stop it happening to you rather than 
this should you shouldn't do this and this is what's going to happen to you and how we can prevent perpetration so that I think mm-hmm. is a really important focus change and finally mm-hmm. the whole thing is about power and inequality so you can't talk about it without mm-hmm. talking about mm-hmm. intersectionality with racism um, and understanding that this is about for me it's about um uh the sexual expression of power it's about minimizing women in public spaces mm-hmm. minimizing women in the workplace and showing dominance and so i think framing it within understanding of gender inequality and racial inequality so there's only four or one mm-hmm. things <laughs> four things rather than one never mind i mean that's even better <laughs> that's that's three more things that we can all do and we should do but thank you so much for talking to me and for your time today and you know for explaining all of these uh extremely important things and your amazing research so well we've we've sort of talked about how universities can introduce trauma informed approaches to reporting and can be more mindful and earn disclosure of survivors and i think this is really valuable work so thank you so much jane thank you so much really my pleasure i i will always be happy to talk about my work to anybody <laughs> thank you